Well, hi, everyone. Welcome to another podcast of On Point. And I'm absolutely delighted to have Senator James Patterson um, along, a great friend uh, from Australia. He's a Liberal uh, Senator in the state of Victoria. Uh, but most importantly for this podcast, uh, he is the chair of the Parliamentary Joint Committee on Intelligence and Security. James, it's an absolute delight to have you on. Uh, it's great to be with you, mate. Thank you very much for having me. Look, you've been leading uh, an incredible amount of work uh, in Australia at the moment. I, I will admit, uh, as a former chair of the Foreign Affairs Committee, I am, I am jealous of the amount of coverage uh, that you get. You're clearly making an impact as you lead that joint uh, committee in some pretty meaty topics, intelligence um, and security. But one of the things that's caught my eye in recent times is the inquiry you led around foreign interference. And so mm -hmm. if I could throw the ball over to you to give myself and listeners a bit of a feel for well, what you learnt and saw through that process. Yeah, thank you. Look, I mean, I think like a lot of Western countries, Australia was very naive and complacent about the dangers of foreign interference in our democracy. Uh, there was much more of it than we thought there was, and it took us much longer than it should have to address it. Um, and there were a couple of high-profile scandals that were a real reality check for our political system. The most spectacular was uh, when a Labor senator for the state of New South Wales, Sam Dastiari, got himself into a very compromised relationship with a uh, Chinese citizen and political donor uh, by the name of Wang Zhengmo. Um, this is a person uh, who was a permanent resident, although not a citizen of Australia, and a property developer who had significant uh, business interests in Australia, uh, who donated a lot of money to the Labor Party. And it emerged throughout this scandal, also donated money to Sam Dastiari personally, for example, to meet uh, his legal expenses. Um, and when he overran his personal expense account uh, through the parliament, uh, the excess payment was made uh, by this political donor instead of by Sam. And as a result of this compromised relationship, um, Sam Dastiari did a number of things that he shouldn't have done. One is he lobbied on behalf of this person uh, to try and get them citizenship in Australia. He rang the immigration department directly or multiple times to lobby for them. Subsequently, this person was denied citizenship on security grounds and ultimately had his Australian passport taken from him and he's prevented from re-entering the country because of an adverse assessment by our security organisation. Uh, Sam also did a joint press conference um, with Wang Zhengmo where he stood up uh, at the Sydney uh, Commonwealth Parliamentary Offices in front of an Australian coat of arms and articulated the Chinese government's position on the South China Sea instead of the Australian government's position on the South China Sea. He wasn't just out of step with the Australian government, he was also out of step with his own Labor Party. Um, and that was a result of the compromised relationship that he developed. And one of the vectors for that uh, compromised relationship was foreign political donations. Uh, but the other vector was that you could operate in Australia on behalf of a foreign government and never be required to disclose it, never be required to say, I'm operating for the purposes of influencing uh, Australian public policy for a foreign government. And so the foreign influence transparency scheme requires that if you're going to do that, that you be open about it. You have to register publicly and say, I'm here as a representative of the New Zealand government or the Chinese government or the Norwegian government or whatever government you're acting on behalf of. Uh, and I think that's been a really important path-breaking reform, and we know a lot of other countries are now looking at it very closely. Yeah, it's definitely something New Zealand will need to look at about having that people clearly register. I mean, there's always going to be those that won't, uh, but that begins, well, to help discern things and put the pressure down when they are uh, acting. 
I noticed too, is it, I don't know the young man's name. There was an issue up at the Queensland University. I know that's really particular, but you had the, the Labour politician, but there were a whole lot of, probably the wrong word, uh, James, but shenanigans going on at the universities, and a couple of these young guys spoke out really clearly about it. Shenanigans is the exact right word for it, um, and it's happened at multiple university campuses across Australia. Probably the most high-profile example is the University of Queensland, where a young student by the name of Drew Pavlou, who was an activist on China human rights abuses, uh, was, in my view, persecuted by his university because of his activism. A series of trumped-up disciplinary charges were made against him, and he was hounded by his university for a number of years. Uh, and ultimately suspended from his university for really, in the scheme of things, quite trivial offences. It was pretty clear that it was the discomfort that he caused his university on those activism uh, issues that led to this persecution. Um, through that scandal, we learnt that the University of Queensland had a Confucius Institute on campus and that the agreement with the Confucius Institute contained no protections for academic freedom or the autonomy of the university. We learned that the Chinese government was directly funding undergraduate courses at the university, including one on China's role in promoting human rights in the world. Um, and we also learned that the vice chancellor of the university was awarded a bonus on top of his salary, uh, a bonus of $200,000 on top of his salary of $1.2 million, uh, not incidentally, uh, in part because he deepened the university's relationship with China and the key performance indicator that he met was that two-thirds of commencing international students in the next uh, academic year were expected to be from mainland China. Now, um, if you're running a business and you were dependent on one customer for two-thirds of your revenue, most boards of management would think that's a financial risk, not a performance to be rewarded with a bonus. Um, but that is a real window into the vulnerabilities that our universities in particular have developed by being dependent on this international student market. Yeah, it's been a bit of a similar issue boiling away in New Zealand. We haven't had any inquiry yet into foreign interference, particularly at our universities, but we actually just had three academics come out earlier this week saying that they feel they've been watched in their classes. People who aren't meant to be there turn up, film, filming them, filming others, uh, causing arguments, usually promoting, in this case, CCP lines, um, mm. elements of intimidation. We've had Hong Kong students beaten up by, uh, I don't know, loyalist, nationalistic, Chinese students, and we've also got the Confucius Institutes here. We haven't had a big discussion uh, around mm. those, but actually touching on them, the Confucius Institutes, certainly in Australia, are of concern or is there any particular ones, or how would you describe it? Look, I, I think it is of concern, and it should be of concern not just to the government and the parliament, but also to the universities themselves. I think they need to reflect on whether it's consistent with their values as liberal institutions in a free society to have on their campus a representative of an authoritarian foreign government which is engaged in systemic human rights abuses. And uh, the purpose of the Confucius Institutes at its most innocent is to promote the soft power of China on Australian university campuses. What, why should we allow any foreign government, but particularly a foreign authoritarian government, to do that on our university campuses? Um, ostensibly, it's about uh, culture and language and exchange, but really it's, it has a political purpose and I don't think universities should willingly allow themselves to be used like that. Yeah, one of the pushbacks I've had here when I've raised it with uh, some in the university sector is it's ultimately a money issue. They go, well, you know, if the institutes are to go, let's say for national security reasons, then actually government, in this case New Zealand government, needs to stump up to make sure that you know, uh, the financial needs of the universities are met. Um, not a perfect argument, but, you know, we're becoming very, very dependent on, on uh, well, some foreign students, and that's, that's causing issues. So, I mean, in terms of your review then, I mean, how has that gone down with the Australian public? 
Well, we haven't handed down our report yet to the university's inquiry, but we will be in the next few months. It's attracted a lot of attention uh, in the public hearings we've held so far. And in fact, one of our witnesses before the inquiry has just released a report. Human Rights Watch in Australia has just done a major investigation into these issues. And what they've identified, which is a particular concern, is the student welfare issues involved here, particularly for international students from China, whether they're from the mainland or Hong Kong or Taiwan or elsewhere in the Chinese diaspora. They feel like they're being watched and they're being um, reported on back to China. And some of them, have, uh, their family and friends back home have received threats and visits from local police in connection with things that they said in a tutorial in an Australian university classroom. Now, that's deeply disturbing. And I think it shows universities are not living up to their, um, their duty of care to those students, not protecting them, and they need to do much more to address it. Again, it won't surprise you. There's been similar elements uh, here where lecturers have told told their students, look, uh, just be careful about what you write. Um, mm -hmm. You know, that's not upset people. And at one level, they're trying to be helpful. Um, but at the other is, well, hold on a moment. You know, our universities are meant to be a bastion of free speech and ideas. And people have been told, let's just, let's just shy away, shy away from this. So, that's I mean, right. from that's your betraying their own values. I think that's the real problem. They're not uh, living up to who they should be. So, I mean, has the Australian public, obviously you haven't published the report, as you say, but I, I'm curious to see the public reaction because I think New Zealand's a little bit slower or approaching this a few steps behind Australia. I mean, have your inquiries, so you have obviously one on the universities and one on interference mm -hmm. in general, I mean, were they well received by Australians? They were, and, and happily we've got some really good hard data to demonstrate that. Um, the Lowy Institute uh, and other think tanks and uh, polling firms have done a lot of research on Australian attitudes towards China and the Chinese government over the last five or so years. And from record high levels of approval in about 2017, where routinely 80% of the public or thereabouts would say that they approve of China, have warm feelings towards China, want to have closer relations with China, that's now down to about 10% of the public who hold that view. And that's a massive change when you think about it in, in just five years. Like New Zealand, uh, China is our major trading partner, our biggest trading partner, and, and, and remains that today. But the public is now very sceptical uh, because of what they've seen, because of what they've seen both here in Australia in terms of foreign interference, but also in terms of the human rights abuses they've seen, whether it's in Xinjiang or Hong Kong, um, the threats of war against Taiwan, the militarisation of the South China Sea. I mean, these things are impossible to ignore for anyone who's paying attention. And it's not really surprising that the Australian public attitudes have changed. One of the most fascinating questions in the poll is um, Australian public attitudes towards foreign leaders. And Xi Jinping is now just one or two points above uh, Kim Jong-un in terms of his public approval. So they have to be pretty determined to get down to North Korean levels of uh, public approval. And but that's, I think, a result of the wolf warrior uh, diplomacy and all the things that Xi Jinping has done as, as leader. Yeah, well, I actually saw that uh, Lauer Institute report. I thought it was really fascinating. I think New Zealand is probably following, but just slightly more slowly. We haven't, we haven't had the the high-level scandals um, yet, although we've done some uh, reports around local government um, elections where there was um, interference, um, probably, again, not really high-level, James, but enough to make people go, well, hold on a moment, what's going on here? And we, we certainly know the uh, Chinese embassy here in New Zealand is, is frequently calling facilities to tell them off if they're wanting to host, I don't know, a pro-democracy rally or something to do with Falun Gong or, or the like, which is... It's not, not our values. You're right to call out the issues in local government. We've had the same in Australia and also with our state governments because obviously we're a federation. 
And what we've identified is that the Chinese Communist Party, and in particular the United Front Work Department, has deliberately targeted targeted local and state governments because they don't have the foreign policy or national security expertise, and they're not in a good position to weigh up those national interest questions. And so they're seen as a bit of a soft target. And we, in fact, in our federal parliament, had to pass a foreign relations bill last year that gave the federal government the power to cancel agreements formed by uh, local governments, state governments, and universities with foreign counterparts, because unfortunately, many of our state and local governments were forming these arrangements that we don't think are in the national interest. And we've already had to veto a number of them, and I suspect there'll be more to be vetoed yet. Um, that is um, uh, really illustrative of the problem that we face. Yeah, and as a Kiwi politician, I'm not going to uh, storm into yours per se, but I was surprised at what some of the state governments had signed up to. Um, mm -hmm. Not naive, um, dare, dare I say it, um, but I thought it was, again, for what it's worth, absolutely necessary legislation, but it's sad that it, yeah. that it was required. Well, exactly. I mean, one of the things we get here at the United Front from what we can see, and it's, it's it's always a little bit elusive. So I'd be interested to know if your inquiry brought out some really concrete examples, but I have a lot of New Zealand Chinese who report to me the intimidation they get. It's the notes on cars, people taking photos, calls at all times of the day and night, uh, knocks on the doors, no one's there. This, yeah, intimidation, they feel um, afraid. Uh, is that something you saw quite concretely through your uh, inquiry? Yeah, we have many similar reports, and one of the main vectors for that kind of intimidation and coercion are apps and platforms like WeChat. Um, the Chinese government has essentially made um, having a WeChat account essential to communicate uh, with family and friends back in China. Um, so if you have family and friends and you want to communicate with them, it's very hard to do it by any other means. And it's also being used now to transfer money um, to and from the mainland among the diaspora communities. So there are many people who, uh, many Australians of Chinese descent who probably don't want to be on a platform like that, but feel they have to. And not only are they being surveilled most likely on that platform and, and monitored on that platform, uh, but also the discussions on those platforms are censored and are full of Chinese state propaganda. Uh, and people who have dissenting views are horrifically bullied and called out um, by uh, you know people in the, those communities who are more supportive of the CCP. Uh, we've also seen um, Chinese language media and particularly newspapers in Australia have uh, many of them have been bought out and taken over by interests linked to the uh, government in Beijing. And so the kind of dissenting voices that you used to have in those um, publications don't exist anymore. So one really good test of that is they used to um, publish uh, a, a memoriam to Tiananmen Square every year uh, in those newspapers and uh, by and large that's disappeared. There's one or two holdouts but most of them now don't do that. So that's a really good indicator uh, of a concrete example of that foreign interference and how it works. Unfortunately, a very similar dynamic here in New Zealand from what we can see, um, and I'll come back to that, but what we can see is most Chinese media has pretty significant links uh, back to, to Beijing. Um, but why I say what we perceive is that actually New Zealand has a, a lack of people who can speak uh, other languages. So, you know, if I, well, a few times articles where I've been called a barking dog and worse uh, gets drawn to my attention. But as a, um, uh, a matter of course, we don't have enough people to be able to, to read and say, hey, this is actually what's been said. Uh, although mm -hmm. I've been at events, sadly, where um, the translator doesn't translate exactly what's happened. People will come up afterwards and say, they didn't decide to say 
they kept a certain line that you'd used out. Uh, or yep. that speaker was trying to talk about Tiananmen Square and the translator didn't actually include it. Yeah, we have, um, again, very similar problems. Uh, the government in particular has a real shortage of Mandarin speakers and particularly Mandarin speakers who can be security cleared and assist yeah. our intelligence and security agencies. Uh, it's not a straightforward thing to do. And so we're quite desperate uh, for more of that. Um, we want our universities in particular to invest more in the education of Asian languages, not just Mandarin, but especially Mandarin. It's, it's a really critical skills shortage. Um, and unfortunately, our universities have been going in the opposite direction. They've been cutting back on those courses rather than doing more of them, even though we've tried to lower the cost of those courses for students. So um, I think that's a, a global phenomenon. Yeah, certainly a challenge here too. So uh, very quickly, don't, don't steal what people we have left here with those skills. Eh? Fair enough. Because everyone jumps across the ditch. <laughs> so, I mean, from from your experience, I mean, you've been a real leader uh, in this space. I mean, what are some of the practical things that we can uh, do again? And this is not asking you to, you know, opine into New Zealand foreign policy mm. or domestic policy, but, you know, when you look at it as a citizen, a person who understands sovereignty, national security, the importance of liberal democracy, what are some of the tangible things that you know countries like New Zealand, Australia, UK, Canada could be doing, should be doing? Well, one of the most important things that uh, we have done over the last five years that I, I think every country should do is to be honest with their own public about the seriousness of the challenges that we face. I think properly educated and explained, the public will be highly sympathetic uh, to the steps that we need to take to safeguard our democracies, to protect our sovereignty, um, they would they would like that we do nothing more than that, as long as we present them accurately what the threat is and how comprehensive and how serious it is. Um, our parliament, for example, has had its email system hacked or attempted to be hacked a number of times. Uh, uh, some of those have been attributed directly to the Chinese government. Um, other of those uh, have not been attributed but have been described as being by a sophisticated state-based actor, and there's only a handful of those in the world uh, particularly have the capacity and the intent to do that. Um, and, uh, and it's not just our um, government systems, but private sector systems are under absolute assault at the moment um, from uh, state espionage um, and cyber attacks. Uh, and that goes directly to our not just our, uh, our lives and our livelihoods, but our way of life. Uh, and it's very dangerous. Our democracies and our economies are very vulnerable to um, that foreign influence and coercion. And if we don't uh, safeguard it ourselves, then I think we'll wake up one day having really regretted uh, not doing everything we can to pass on to future generations the, the liberal democracies that we've lived in ourselves. Yeah, uh, for me, it, and I hope it's not too much of an academic point, but you know, democracy is actually quite fragile. Um, yeah. And I, I don't think people appreciate at times that, yeah, it can be taken for granted. I mean, at the moment, maybe affecting some of your guys over there, but uh, clear messaging to me to absolutely double down on uh, security uh, mm -hmm. because there's concrete and specific threats, state-sponsored uh, threats to, to hack everything from social media to emails. And it's sort of not unexpected, but at the same time, not very comfortable. It's not something that myself and, and other MPs and senators around the world expect should be happening, but it is. Um, yeah, and I think your point about democracy is so important. I mean, the vast majority of human beings who've ever lived have lived under authoritarian systems of government. We are the exception. We are not the rule. And um, although both our countries have been peaceful and prosperous and democratic for a long time, um, even most people alive today don't live under those systems of government and don't have the freedoms we do. So we really do need to cherish them and safeguard them uh, because it wouldn't take all that much for us to lose them. And, uh, and that's a very sober thought. The other side of it too, and um, 
as deliberate malice, I would call, particularly by state actors um, who, well, we've seen it, well, if we keep on the China or the CCP front, um, we saw the leaked uh, data on different people, Australia, mm. New Zealand, Canada, people who'd been in Shanghai, for example, like lists and lists of people where they're working through, you'd have been on the list, I'm on the list, family members, friends, they're collating enormous amounts of data mm. uh, on democratically elected people and their families. And then the other night, Tom Tugendhat, who you'll know, the chair of the Foreign Affairs Committee mm. in, um, in the UK, was holding a seminar with some experts from Oxford University about how the CCP manipulates Twitter, how posts are very, very quickly uh, reposted and so forth. So a very long way of me saying, there's a really sophisticated program yes. here to challenge us and we need to push back. That's exactly the right way to describe it. I mean, the Chinese Communist Party is running the most sophisticated authoritarian techno state we've ever seen. Uh, and Previous authoritarian regimes in history would have dreamed to have access to the technology and the power that that gives the Chinese Communist Party. Um, perhaps we would still have the Soviet Union if they were able to monitor everybody's whereabouts and movements and um, crack down on internal dissent in the way the Chinese Communist Party can. Um, they've got uh, the biggest network of CCTV cameras in the world. Uh, they're, they're, they're all hooked up together to a national facial recognition database, and they've got very sophisticated. Uh, artificial intelligence, which um, tracks people through that. I mean, the social credit system that we've learned about in China and the way in which that attaches points uh, to people that can have a, a, a big bearing on their future and their lives uh, based on their adherence to Chinese Communist Party ideology. That That's a terrifying thing. And unfortunately, it's not only domestically in China. As you say, they take a real interest in what happens in our societies. They collect a lot of data about what happens in our societies. And it's not just things that are available uh, from open source yeah. platforms. It includes espionage and, and cyber theft. Well, that's been that's been some of the aspects that have absolutely thrown me when um, got access to some of the data. It's very, very sophisticated, and I mean, not enough to keep me awake at night. I'm sort of not that personality, but it does just illustrate um, that we can't be can't be naive. Hey, jumping jumping topics on you. We've obviously a huge area that you've uh, worked and led in, but I also see in recent. Um, recent days, your committee has uh, made some recommendations around uh, Hezbollah. Um, again, it's quite a topical, uh, out, well, it's quite topical in New Zealand at the moment. Yeah. I might explore with you why, but yeah, what happened there? What have you done? Yeah, so one of the roles of the Intelligence and Security Committee is to review terrorist listings. So the, the government, in our case, the Home Affairs Minister, determines whether an organisation meets the legal criteria for terrorist listing and then refers it to my committee to be inquired into. And Australia has had a long-standing policy in the case of Hezbollah of only listing the, the external security organisation of Hezbollah rather than the whole organisation of Hezbollah or just the military ring of Hezbollah as a terrorist entity. And that's got a number of important limitations to it. Um, we have had instances in Australia where people have been convicted of violent offences and identified as being a Hezbollah supporter and police or, or sought a high-risk terrorist offender control order to keep uh, tabs on them if they're ever released from prison. And they've been denied um, that control order because the courts have been unable to determine whether the person is just a supporter of Hezbollah's political or civilian uh, wing or their external security organisation. So it's had some practical implications for Australia. I also think it just doesn't meet the evidence test. It's very clear that Hezbollah is a single unitary organisation. It's run by Hassan Nasrallah and below him the Shura Council. 
and every element of, of Hezbollah reports to him through the Shura Council. And that includes, yes, the civilian activities that they engage in, that the health and welfare services they provide, but also the Jihad Council, including the external security organisation and the military wing. And so the distinction that Australia has drawn between those different elements of Hezbollah, I think, is an arbitrary one and an unsustainable one. And most countries in the world go further than Australia, including New Zealand, which lists the military wing, uh, and the European Union and France. But many other countries like the United States, Canada, the United Kingdom, uh, Germany, Switzerland, Japan, I can go on and on, they list the full organisation. So we've recommended uh, that the government reconsider and extend the listing to cover all of Hezbollah. Which, again, as a Kiwi politician saying to you, I think it's a great, a great call. We've had the um, rather strange situation here uh, in about a week ago where we had a, or the country had a, a big, we call it a hui or a meeting on uh, countering uh, terrorism and uh, extremist violence in New Zealand. So the great and the good from our security, uh, intelligence, military, right through to academics and interested parties. Uh, someone from the Jewish community um, was talking their experiences uh, and talked about the likes of Hamas and Hezbollah as terrorist organizations. Uh, and believe it or not, was uh, shouted down by some in the audience uh, to have some in the audience, again, in New Zealand, in front of um, our people, uh, saying that they're not, they're, they're freedom fighters, they're here to liberate. And I suppose I share it with you and those listening, because I just think it's absolutely horrendous in itself. But maybe it's illustrative, James, of where New Zealand's at, that at one level we, we talk about countering these things and yet indulged, indulged in a public meeting with no one challenging these people who are saying, no, Hezbollah is perfectly fine, perfectly fine. Yeah, well, it is very depressing and it's very concerning. And, and some people do view Hezbollah through the lens of purely the Israel-Palestinian conflict. And yeah. um, that is a really limiting lens to view it because Hezbollah is a global terrorist organisation that has carried out and still seeks to carry out terrorist attacks all around the world. And they particularly target the Jewish community, but they could target the Jewish community in Australia or in New Zealand, just as they have, for example, in 1994 in Buenos Aires, where the Jewish community centre was blown up by uh, terrorists, killing 90-odd people. I mean, th this is the sophistication and the scale of this organisation. Um, Australian citizens, dual citizens of Australia and Lebanon, have been arrested uh, across Europe uh, for being involved in bombing of tourist buses from Israel and elsewhere. So, I mean, this is not just an issue of the Israel-Palestinian conflict. It's, a, it's an issue of the free world and what we do in response to terrorists who target deliberately civilians for political purposes to kill them. Now, no one, whatever your stance on, uh, on Palestinian-Israeli issues, should have any sympathy for those uh, tactics and those methods that they openly and happily deploy. And a really good distinction there, because unfortunately, and certainly we've happened has happened here in New Zealand in recent uh, weeks because of the Israeli-Gaza conflict. It's become a very narrow view where, mm -hmm. again, why I compliment the recommendation of your committee, Hezbollah's reach is much, much wider and, than just simply the Israeli issue. So that's actually yeah. really, well, again, great news. But to put you on the spot then a bit wider, what, what do you see as important um aspects of sort of, you know, intelligence and security for Australia and the Indo-Pacific moving forward. Obviously, not asking for the, the deep operational stuff, but, you know, as chair, what do you see as sort of the key, the key priorities and particularly, if I might, where New Zealand should be playing a, a part cooperatively with you? Yeah. Well, obviously, New Zealand and Australia are great defence and security partners, both directly bilaterally, but also through the Five Eyes. I mean, it is the most 
important intelligence and security relationship uh, in the world today. Um, and it gives Australia and New Zealand incredible access to rich, live, uh, raw intelligence that on our own as smaller countries, we would never be able to replicate. And in turn, we do contribute real value um, back to that alliance. And particularly, we we contribute value in our own backyard, in our own area of expertise, in, in the Pacific in particular, the Southwest Pacific in particular. And both Australia and New Zealand have a really important role to play, um, both because it's the right thing to do and, and you know, and the Pacific is part of our family and, and so connected to our countries, but also because of the security um, challenges that the region presents. Um, we've got to both play a really important leadership role there. Um, one of the issues I've been concerned about is the march of the Belt and Road Scheme uh, across the Southwest Pacific in particular, um, because I don't think it uh, delivers good outcomes for the people uh, of the Pacific and because I think it provides an opportunity for the Chinese Communist Party to um, increase its influence uh, at the expense of our influence and at the expense of our interests. And so um, we've got to work with our um, Pacific uh, family and friends to make sure that they're not being taken advantage of, um, that if infrastructure is going to be built under those arrangements, that it's good, high-quality uh, infrastructure, it's built at fair prices, um, it is sustainable, um, and it involves local workforces, not imported workers from China who take most of the benefits back home. Because unfortunately, um, that is what we've seen in lots of countries where it has been rolled out. Yeah, well, one of the last things I did um, before my chairship of the Foreign Affairs, Defence and Trade Committee ended in New Zealand with a <clears throat> certain election result that didn't quite go my <laughs> team's way, <laughs> um, was um, doing an inquiry into our support in the Pacific. And it was really, really clear that actually our Pacific neighbours want the likes of Australia and New Zealand to, to work with them. They feel a, an affiliation to us through history and values. Um, but again, I can't speak to Australia, but they felt that New Zealand at times wasn't forthcoming either with money um, or treating them with enough respect. And so it provides an openness for other countries like China just to come in and say, well, we'll build your road, we'll do your stadium. And so I think that's a, a challenge for both our countries along with the likes of the UK and the EU, actually, how do we cooperate to make sure our values are, are well well supported and through the Pacific? Yeah, I, I think that's a fair comment for Australia too. I think there was a time in Australian politics where the Pacific dropped off the agenda, where it wasn't as uh, important as it is today, and we're responding to that with our Pacific step up, which I know mirrors a lot of the um, policies that uh, New Zealand has had in place on a bipartisan basis for a long time. Um, the, the COVID vaccine rollout, which Australia and New Zealand are cooperating with to assist in the Pacific, is a perfect example of um, how we can work to help uh, our family and friends there. Um, that's that's tangible um, support that we can provide that we do um, out of the goodness of our own hearts and with no strings attached. We're, we're not like other countries who say you can have our vaccine conditional on some geopolitical outcome. Uh, we say it's in our interest and in your interest that you are healthy and safe and that you get through COVID as quickly as possible. And I'd love to see a Pacific travel bubble opening up between all of our countries soon. And so we do it because it's the right thing to do. But unfortunately, other actors uh, have different motivations. Yeah, I won't uh, get so specific, but we've certainly seen other instances where uh, certain people in the Pacific get very, very big gifts. Or, hey, if you need an office opened up in, I don't know, New York for the UN, oh, well, we'll, we'll sort that for you. Nice office, everything's all, all done. It's effectively a state-to-state -state, uh, bribery. And it's, it's fortunately not something that nations like New Zealand and Australia are involved with. But, but it's the encouragement for us to keep doing that and even, even more, particularly after COVID, because as you'll know, our Pacific uh, brothers and sisters are, are struggling quite a bit financially. Yeah. yeah, I mean, my heart goes out to those uh, islands which are particularly tourism dependent, as many of them are, 
Um, they're favoured uh, destinations by Australians and New Zealanders alike, I know. And we all look forward to getting back and visiting again and helping them get their economies up off the ground again. And the only way to do that is a good vaccine rollout in all of our countries and, and keeping COVID at bay. Definitely. Hey, it's jumping a bit south quickly, actually. I was remiss of not asking, is Antarctica, well, let me phrase it as a statement and a question. Antarctica looms quite large in New Zealand's uh, mindset at strategic interests, both from a climate change environmental side through to security. Is that something which, if you will, crosses your desk or of particular interest in the Australian Parliament or Senate, sorry, Senate? Yeah. Yeah, look, it, it doesn't come directly to my committee, but it is of concern to many Australian parliamentarians. And I know our um, Joint uh, Standing Committee on Foreign Affairs and Trade has looked into issues there as well. Um, because unfortunately, there are, again, players who don't respect the international rules-based order and the way in which we used to be able to operate in places like Antarctica in a very shared, cooperative way with other like-minded countries um, is not always holding true. Uh, and we've seen both in the Antarctic and the Arctic, um, whether it's Russia or China or others, um, who frankly just think that they can use power and influence and might to get their way rather than coming to the negotiating table and going through the established systems and process we have to resolving any kind of disputes that exist. Yeah. Again, it won't surprise you're on a very similar uh, mindset. There's been a few things happening of late, which has just put a, yeah, put some of the decisions being made around Antarctica development of bases, what's been taken down there, again, by other countries, not Australia, uh, yeah. to sort of put a red light in, in my, uh, my head, hence the question. Hey, James, I've taken up a lot of your time, but I'm incredibly grateful uh, that you've made the time with everything going on. Um, but also wanted to say again, thank you for the leadership which you clearly display uh, in Australia. I, I watch it with uh, great admiration uh, and the work that you've led on that joint committee is just phenomenal and uh, particularly around foreign interference. So thank you so much. Well, thank you so much for having me and um, keep up the fight there in New Zealand too. Uh, you've got a, a big task in your hand as we have had on ours and um, I wish all strength to your arm. Thanks very much. Thanks, James.